Okay, welcome. Happy Mother's Day. And to you, two moms in here. And welcome to the Sunday evening, Genesis through Malachi. We are in the book of Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 11. Leviticus chapter 11, let us pray before we begin. Father, I just thank you in Jesus' name for your word, every bit of it. And Lord, uh, just thank you so much for this book, the book of Leviticus, which just teaches us so much, Lord. And I think of in Ephesians, it talks about Paul. Uh, rather, the book of Acts in Ephesus talks about Paul, Lord. For two years, speaking all day, every day, in the school of Tyrannus. And by the time he left them, he could say, I did not fail to give you the whole counsel of God. And how much was shared with them just out of this book. This is so timeless. And so, Father, we, we pray, Father, that you, even as there's a lot of detail here in Leviticus, that we would be opened up to a part of your character that we didn't know about before we walked in tonight, Lord. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, the book of Leviticus, up until this point, we have been focusing on the different offerings that, the, uh, that were offered in the tabernacle, the burnt offering, the grain offering, the peace offering, the sin offering, the trespass offering. And then we transition into the priesthood and the initiation, the inauguration of the Aaronic priesthood and the different things that they went through, the, the washings, the offerings, being anointed with oil in order for them to participate in offerings before the in front of the veil of God in the in the altar of of um, sacrifice with the ark of the covenant behind the veil with the presence of God there but in chapter 11 we get into some of the ceremonial laws, and really these laws are all about separation. Separation. They're all about holiness. Now there's, there are other reasons too for some of these laws that we're going to um, read about in the next few chapters. They're 
Our chapter's about dietary laws, sanitation rules, personal hygienes. But as we, as you read through them, it's important not to get too bogged down in, in, in detail. But that you remember as you're reading some of the detail that God has called us to be separate. In the first sermon ever given in the church, Acts chapter 2, Peter said, Apostle Peter said, full of the Holy Spirit, be saved from this twisted generation. And Leviticus is all about that in a way. They had been brought out of Egypt. They had been brought out from that people in Egypt, a land that was just filled with idolatry. Filled with so much ugliness, including just so many unhealthy things from a dietary or for a, 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 a hygiene perspective. They were leaving Egypt, and they were leaving dads. So thinking back at Acts chapter 2, be saved from this twisted generation. They'd been saved from Egypt, but they were going into a land that had been, that was full of idolatry as well. Canaan, filled with idolatry. Recently, I was in China, and for the second time, I went into, I did it before when I went to China, but I went into a Tibetan Buddhist monastery, and I tell you, you do get a sense of what we've been saved from when you go into these monasteries frequented by, by people, and just pictures of monsters on the wall oppressing people gobbling up people there is pictures of bestiality taking place on the walls Peter said be saved from this twisted generation the Jews were saved from Egypt now, as we're going to be going through this chapter, although you should always keep in mind, first and foremost, this is about separation. There are other things as well, which God is just protecting the people. This, this, this people, people Israel, are going to, God's going to preserve them so, so race after race after race over the generations has just been assimilated into different populations, particularly when they lose their geographical, a geographical location, as Israel did. But God wants to preserve these people. And one of the ways he's going to do it is just by the wisdom behind some of the dietary rules and the sanitation rules and the personal 
hygiene. And there's a book out there, it's called, it's by S.I. McMillan and David Stern, it's called None of These Diseases. And you can go through this book, it lays out the wisdom of God and uh, the, the law of God and the law of Moses, just in terms of health uh, and preventing disease. And what it does is compares this with, um, it compares it with modern medicine, medicine. And, you know, 3,500 years after being given some of these rules about sanitation, not even a single one is suspect. During the Middle Ages, a third of the population of Europe died of the bubonic plague. Just when you look at it, the numbers are so astonishing. You think, how can this be true? Something like 250 million people for a period of a couple hundred years. I mean, just astonishing. But during that time, the Jews adhered to these very rules here in the book of Leviticus. They would not drink from public water sources. They wouldn't bathe in public baths. They had rules about um, you know, what they did with the dead, how they disposed of dead bodies, how they handled bodily fluids. Their death rate was much lower than the general population, such that that there were pogroms, persecutions of, of Jews out of the superstition that somehow they were plotting the whole thing. The Jews were merely following some of the laws that we'll be following today. Again, such as and what do you do with dead bodies? It is a fact that while not all dead bodies, um, it, it, is it a problem handling? If, a, if someone died from a, a, a contagious uh, disease such as smallpox, or hepatitis B, or hepatitis C, tuberculosis, cholera, and others, it can be dangerous handling a corpse, the person who died from those um, diseases, um, as I understand it. And so, um, but, so we're going to go through and we're going to look at some of those things, but we should never lose sight of the fact that this is all, though, about being distinct from the world. Every time they sat down to a meal, a Jew, it was a reminder to them, because we're going to go through the, some of the kosher laws, we are not like everyone else in the world. Now, of course, that got to be an issue of pride over time, but, but it's, it's just that reminder. It's a reminder to the families. It's a reminder to the families as they're teaching their kids. We are not like everyone else in this world, and, 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 and oh, being a parent. <laughs> Is this a, um, just a, a, a constant lesson that we've had to teach our kids over the years, sometimes with a lot of resistance? We're not like everyone else in the world. If some of you don't have kids yet, or your kids are very small, and you're wondering, I wonder if 
I, I, I wonder if, uh, I wonder if that's really true. I wonder if parents just say that. They just, you know, that just like a common uh, urban myth that, you know, kids say, well, everyone else is doing it. You just wait. They'll be saying it. At which point you have to stand fast. Oh, God help. That good, little good Jewish boy, he said, oh, come on, can't we try a pig? Some roast pork? God help him. You know, at the time after, after these laws were given, First Peter, it says you, to Christians, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So some things have not changed. Now, a lot of this stuff has changed in terms of what we are and not allowed to do. In Acts chapter 10, Peter is on the housetop. He's very hungry. Falls into a trance. He sees heaven opened up. Verse 11 of Acts chapter 10. A great sheet comes out. Four corners. In the sheet were all kinds of four-footed animals of the earth. Wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air. And a voice came to him. Rise, Peter. Kill and eat. But Peter said, not so, Lord, for I've never eaten anything uh, common or unclean. And a voice spoke to him again and said, what God has cleansed you must not call common. And then this was done three times. So much, this has been so much ingrained into that good Jewish boy, Peter. God had to show that to him. Three times. Wow. In Colossians chapter 2. It says that through Jesus' death on the cross, he has made us alive together with him. Chapter 2, verse 13 having wiped out the hand handwriting of requirements that was against us. Verse 16, so let no one judge you in food or drink, which are a shadow of things to come. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3, says God created all foods which are to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. So please do not let yourself, allow yourself to be convinced by someone who believes that Christians need to still be following these things. You will run into Messianic Jews who will take you to those places from time to time. Many Messianic Jews don't have the issue at all. Some do. So verse 1 of Leviticus chapter 11 says, Now the Lord uh, spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying to them, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, These are the animals which you may eat among all the animals that are on the, uh, are on the earth. Among the animals, whatever divides the hoof 
having cloven hooves and chewing the cud. So cloven hoofs, chewing the cud. Cloven hoofs, chewing the cud. Those two things. Has to be both. That you may eat. Nevertheless, those, these, you, well, before we go to verse 3, so that's going to include things like ox, goat, sheep, deer, all of which have cloven hoofs, divided hoofs, and they chew the cud. Now, some folks like to look at the possible symbolism there. I'm a little conservative when it's about things like that going in that direction. But they, they speak about the divided um, hoofs, possibly. Does that mean, is that speaking of separation? Is it speaking of that? A separated life? Is chewing the cud speaking of a life of meditating on God's word? Meditation is chewing. We've used that analogy many, many times. Chewing on the word of God. Blessed is the man who does walks not on the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. So, chewing on the word of God day and night. Could it be? I don't know. I uh, would say maybe, and if you want to go, if you want to take that in interpretation, go for it. Just don't force it on others. <laughs> interesting to think about. Verse 4 says, Nevertheless, these you shall not eat among those who chew the cud or those who have cloven hoofs. The camel! Oh no! What are we going to do without camels? Well, it says in Acts chapter 10, as redeemed believers, we can eat camel meat. Anyone ever had camel steak here? Anyone? Oh, okay. I understand this is Palestinians like eating camel because because it chews the cud but does not have cloven hooves it's unclean to you the rock hyrix what on the world is a rock hyrix I knew you were going to ask that question that's why I have a picture of it right here there's a rock hyrix and Mike look there's a rock hyrix I knew you were wondering that's it you are not allowed to eat that thing if you are kosher, Orthodox Jew. Thank you, Sean. Why? Because it chews the cud and, uh, but does not have cloven hoofs. It's unclean to you. Verse 6, the hair. Because it chews the cud but does not have cloven hooves, it is unclean to you. Now, how many rabbits do you see chewing their cud? So there, were, there have been Bible skeptics who point at that. What, what kind of hair rabbit chews a cud? And as I understand, just in the last, I don't know, 40 years, they have discovered in a way completely different than cows do that rabbit's hair is actually 
I, I don't want to get into the very gory, weird, gross details, but um, they actually do. They actually chew the cud. They, you know, stuff that comes out, they chew it up again. I'll, I'll keep it clean, but you never knew that. You see, you learned something going through the book of Leviticus at Calvary Chapel in the city. Now, you know that about rabbits and hares. Verse 7, and the swine pigs, though it divides the hoof, having cloven hooves, yet does not chew the cud, is unclean to, to you. So many of you probably know about the swine, the pig, can host a number of parasitic organisms not in, in, in a way that is, how would you say it, they're more accommodating than a cow or a sheep, including trichinosis, which can be very dangerous and even kill someone. Verse 8, their flesh you shall not eat, their carcasses you shall not touch, they are unclean to you. Verse 9, these you may eat of all that are in the water. Whatever's in the water that has fins and scales. Now, I don't know if anyone sees the symbolism in fins and scales, but here's your homework assignment. You come back and meditate on these verses. Chew the cud on these verses and come back. But what the symbolism there? Fins and scales. Whether in the seas or in the rivers, uh, you may eat. But all in the seas or in the rivers that does not have fins and scales, all that move in the water or any living thing which is in the water, they are an abomination to you. They shall be an abomination to you. You shall not eat their flesh, but you shall regard their carcasses as an abomination. Whatever in the water does not have fins or scales, that shall be an abomination to you. So I don't know what to say. My favorite food in the entire world, a, a, a fact that probably interests only me and maybe my wife of 29 years. On May 14th, 1988, we got married. Wonderful day. But my favorite food is lobster with ginger and scallion. Lobster with ginger and scallion. But that's not kosher. Thank you, God. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for declaring lobster clean. So shellfish are unclean. In addition, catfish, because it doesn't have scales, unclean. Eels. Anyone ever eaten an eel? Yeah, I have. Has anyone ever caught an eel? I've caught a few eels in my life. Eels are not kosher. Sorry. Sushi. I know some of you have had eel for at a sushi restaurant. Come on. But they do not have scales. They're unclean. Now, interestingly enough, 
The, th the thing that's fascinating to me about shellfish, for example, oysters. Oysters, you know, you read a lot of stories about oysters, people getting sick from oysters. That is because an if there's a, a body of water that becomes highly toxic, polluted, the fish generally die. But the shellfish will just keep on boogieing. Man, the mussels, the oysters, and they will become just like the water, the polluted water that they're in. And that's why, you know, you, you need to be more careful with oysters. God knows that. The ancient world, whether they knew that or not, I don't know. But God wants to preserve this people. Catfish, the same thing as a bottom feeder. So, so it feeds on, you know, th gross stuff. I was just reading this about eels. Just read this article this week in Dutch TV. TV in the Netherlands featured a story that many eels found in restaurants and stores are so highly toxic that under EU law is prohibited to sell them for consumption. Apparently the government is aware of this and is not doing anything, but um, um, it, it says that in the fish, uh, it, it says that freshwater eels from the large Dutch ri river have Dutch rivers have seven times the allowed concentration of dioxin. So they, they appear also to be able to survive in toxic waters. So God knows this stuff. He's preserving his people. Verse 13, and those you shall regard as an abomination among the birds. They shall not be eaten. They are an abomination. The eagle, the vulture, the buzzard. The kite, the falcon after its kind, every raven after its kind, the ostrich, that would include ostrich eggs, the short-eared owl, the seagull, the hawk after its kind, the little owl, the fisher owl, the screech owl, the white owl, man, owls, no eating owls. The jackdaw, the carrion vulture, the stork, the heron after its kind, the hoopoe, the bat. Sorry, no bats. Not kosher. Let's go through these next ones. All flying insects that eat, that creep on all fours shall be an abomination to you. So... Um, insects, I won't get too description, uh, too descriptive, but that creep around on all fours, that creeping around on what? On lots of unhealthy stuff. Let's just leave it at that. A fly. You've seen what flies get on. Shall be an abomination to you. Yet these, you're going to hold, hold off to later. Yet these um, you may eat off of every flying insect that creeps on all fours, those that have jointed legs, so there are certain ones that creep around on all fours, jointed legs above their feet with which to leap on the earth. 
These you may eat, the locust after its kind, the destroying locust after its kind, the cricket after its kind, the grasshopper after its kind, but all other flying insects which have four feet shall be an abomination to you. By these you shall become unclean. Whoever touches the carcass of any of them shall be unclean until evening. Whoever carries part of the carcass of any of them shall wash his clothes uh, and be unclean until evening. I'm jumping a little ahead there in verse 24 and 25, but remember locusts, John the Baptist, what did he eat? He, he, he ate locusts and honey. And man, some of those locust swarms would be a lot of food. Verse 26, the carcass of any animal which divides the hood, but hoof uh, divides the foot but is not cloven hooked or does not chew the cud is unclean to you. Everyone who touches it shall be unclean. And whatever goes on its paws among all kinds of animals that go on all fours, these are unclean to you. Whoever touches any such carcass shall be unclean until evening. I believe a lion would be included in that, a leopard, a cheetah. Verse 28, whoever carries any such carcass shall wash his clothes and be unclean until evening. It is unclean to you. These also shall be unclean to you. The creeping things that creep on the earth, the mole, the mouse, the large lizard after its kind, the gecko, the moth, the monitor lizard, the sand reptile, the sand lizard, the chameleon. These are unclean to you among all that creep. Whoever touches them when they are dead shall be unclean until evening. Anything on which any of them falls when they are dead shall be unclean, whether it is any item of wood or clothing or skin or sack, whatever item it is in which any work is done, it must be put in water. It shall be unclean until evening so protecting their food supply there and requirement of washing things cleanliness has followed god's people for thousands of years to study in and of itself and there you have this reference to, to to washing things verse 33 any earthen vessel into which any of them falls you shall break and whatever is in it shall be unclean in such a vessel any edible food upon what which water falls becomes unclean and any drink that may be drunk from it becomes unclean so again protecting their water supply there and everything on which a part of any such carcass falls shall be unclean whether it is an oven or cooking stove it shall be broken down for they are unclean and shall be unclean to you so just protecting their cooking utensils verse 36 nevertheless a spring a spring that's which referred to as living water, moving water, or a cistern in which there is plenty of water shall be clean, but whatever touches any such car carcass must become unclean. So if you grab a mouse out of a very large cistern of water, the whole thing is not unclean, although you would be unclean. This is a dead mouse. Um... 
Verse 37, and if, if a part of any such carcass falls on any planting seed which is to be sown, it remains clean. But if water is put on the seed, and if a part of any such carcass falls on it, it becomes unclean. And if any animal which you may eat dies, he who touches his carcass shall be unclean until evening. He who eats of its carcass shall wash his clothes and be unclean until evening. He who also who carries its carcass shall wash his clothes and be unclean until evening. So just cleanliness. Some of the places that we go to on missions trips who have, which have never been affected by the gospel. Shocking. The filth in some of these places. Some of the places in Brazil that we've been through and walked through. Just shocking. The, the living conditions and the disregard of, of just keeping things clean. I remember going another trip to another trip to China visiting my brother and going up into the mountains to an un, unreached uh, people group who lived in caves, and then we talked to these people. Never heard about Jesus ever. And they lived in caves, and they were very hospitable. And they invited us in, and they insisted that we eat with them. I'm telling you, it was one of the most torturesome 90 minutes of my life. I, 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 I'm thinking to myself, this is going to be bad. This is going to be really bad. And, and I had that Cipro flax and stuff, and I had left it back in my hotel in another part of the country. I didn't have anything in case I started, you know, convulsing and, and, and shaking from, from what I ate. And I just, I just remember watching this woman as she cut up a chicken. I'm saying a live chicken, not, not that stuff that you pull from a counter at Stop and Shop. She pulls out a live chicken. There's blood everywhere. There's dirt everywhere. The, the knives are dirty. And I'm thinking, this is it. Uh, this is it. I mean, I'm going. I'm gone after eating this thing. God preserved my life. <laughs> but, but it's no coincidence that there had never been any, t touched by, by the gospel at all. This area that we were in. Where were we? Verse 39. And if any animal which you may eat dies, he who touches its carcass shall be unclean till evening. He who eats of its carcass shall wash his... No, we, we read verse 40. Let's go to verse 41. And every creeping thing that creeps on the earth shall be an abomination. It shall not be eaten. No centipedes. No millipedes. Out. Sorry. If you want to be kosher. Say, well, I'm not kosher, except unless it comes to centipedes and millipedes, then I'm kosher. Okay, go for it. That's good. Verse 42, whatever crawls on its belly, whatever goes on all fours, or whatever has many feet among all creepy, uh, creeping things that creep on the earth, these you shall not eat, for they are an abomination. You shall not make for yourselves abominable with any creeping thing that creeps, nor shall you make yourselves unclean with them, lest you be defiled by them. For I am the Lord. Now here's the, 
Here's the heart of the message here. We've talked about all kinds of health and sanitary reasons, hygiene reasons. But the biggest issue is this, verse 44, for I am the Lord your God. You shall not you shall therefore consecrate yourselves and you shall be holy for I am holy. Neither shall you defile yourselves with any creeping thing that creeps on the earth. For I am the Lord who brings you up out of the land of Egypt. I rescued you from that place where they're eating all this stuff and doing all these things and having no regard for corpses and cleanliness. And, and, and I, I brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy for I am holy. This is the law of the animals and the birds and every living creature that moves in the waters and of every creature that creeps on the earth to distinguish between the unclean and the clean and between the animal that may be eaten and the animal that may not be eaten. Okay, there you have it. The kosher laws. Now chapter 12 gets into things which or a little more difficult perhaps for our modern ears to understand. Man, we don't mind reading that we're not supposed to be eating a millipede. I mean, that's, that's kind of easy to read, right? I'm sorry, was there a question? No question. But when we get into chapter 12, things are a little bit, uh, a little different. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the children of Israel saying, if a woman has conceived and born a male child, then she shall be unclean seven days as in the days of her customary impurity. She shall be unclean. Hmm. What is that about? Let's skip to verse 5. But if she bears a female child, then she shall be unclean two weeks. That's double the time of uncleanliness as in her customary impurity. And she shall continue in the blood of her purification 66 days. Verse 6, when the days of her purification are fulfilled, whether for her son or daughter, then she shall bring to the priest a lamb of the first year as a burnt offering and a young pigeon of a turtle of as a sin offering to the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Verse 7, then he shall offer it before the Lord and make atonement for her and she shall be clean from the flow of her blood. This is the love of her who has uh, born a male or a female and if she is not able to bring a lamb, then she may bring two turtles or two pigeons. One is a burnt offering, the other is a sin offering. So the priest shall make atonement for her and she will be clean. So what do we make of all this? This for, for males, after they're born, the woman is unclean for seven days. So we didn't read verse four. Um, it, it, it says, for, for male, she shall continue in the blood of her purification 33 days. She shall not touch any hallowed thing, nor come into the sanctuary until the days of purification are fulfilled. But for, 
for baby girls, it's double. Should be on clean two weeks, and the time of her purification is double. So much hand wringing over these verses. What is this all about? Some will say that you know this whole idea of a woman being unclean after bearing a child has to do with original sin. And God just wants that reminder of original sin coming into the world. And baby girls have twice the period of uncleanliness and some, just that reminder that Eve's sinned first in the garden. Paul brings that up. Where's that first Timothy? I personally don't think that's the purpose of uncleanliness. However, it does say in verse 7 that a sin offering, they're supposed to go before the Lord after the time of purification and offer a lamb or a pigeon as a sin offering. That recognition, now we had, we spent actually two or three weeks on in Leviticus on the, the whole system of sin offerings. There's, they're born into sin. A baby's born into sin. And it's just a, a, a recognition of that when you go to the altar of sacrifice. This is my, this is my son. This is my daughter. And it's just a remembrance that even as a child, they have sinned. That's why we don't baptize infants around here. Because baptism is, I believe, something to be done after the point where a boy or girl, or a, man, a, a, a woman or man, consciously gives their life to Christ. David says, Psalm 51, in sin, my mother conceived me. That's Psalm 139. It's one of them. But... Um, the sin offering is important however the, the idea of being unclean for seven days um, I believe really is more about the blood it, it makes reference um, in verse 7 that after her time of, unclean, uh, of uncleanliness it says in verse 7, she shall be clean from the flow of her blood. Israel is instructed to be very careful regarding the handling of blood. We know today that um, disease can be spread through blood. Hepatitis C. We have to take that booster before we go on missions trips. It's a disease that spreads through blood. You say, well, that makes sense for the seven days. What about the double? 
amount of days of uncleanliness for a female child, uh, child, again, look, I'm willing to believe the hard things about the Bible and obey them. Could very well be that um, it's a reminder uh, of what happened in Genesis chapter 3. I was reading, and this is you know, very interesting to me, another fact that you will leave tonight that you never knew before, probably, is the sex ratio at the time of conception is 50-50 between males and females. But more males are born throughout the world because of the higher mortality rate for female fetuses. Now, who knew that in this room? According to a new study by biologist Stephen Orzak of the Fresh Pond, not the movie theater, but the Fresh Pond Research Institute in Cambridge, Massachusetts. In fact, in the United States, 51% of babies born are male. Now, males do have a higher mortality rate, but I don't believe it catches up or even anywhere near catches up to the fact that, um, that there's more babies born that are male. Could it be that there's a, a longer period of the two-week period of uncleanness and what is it, a 66-day period of, of, uh, of, of purification where there's just a more nurturing and more attention given to the female child so as to make up for that. I don't know. That's just sanctified speculation. Some people hear this and say, man, that speculation wasn't even sanctified. I don't know what that was, but well, anyway. Facts that may interest only me, but you know, I, f I find it um, kind of interesting, particularly in light of some of the other uh, laws that we read about in Levit Leviticus chapter 11, where it seems to be one of the underlying purpose is the preservation of his people. Could it be that he's doing something there for the specific purpose of preserving women and evening out that ratio. I don't know. Now we skipped over verse 3. On the eighth day after the birth of a baby boy, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. And we went over this previously in Genesis chapter 7, where Abraham is a sign of his of God's covenant to, to Abraham and his descendants required to circumcise the child, circumcision on the eighth day. Circumcision, by the way, had happened in the first three or four days. At this time, 3,500 years ago, they probably would have bled to death because the vitamin K uh, in a, a typical baby's uh, a body has not generated to a level high enough and I understand that on the eighth day, it's at its highest level. And so, circumcision. Now, although there are many people who are getting very angry and upset about this kind of thing, calling it mutilation and trying to eliminate circumcision, I think in San Francisco they passed a law, which was struck down by a federal court, I think, um, prohibiting uh, prohibiting circumcision, it is a fact that the practice of circumcision 
does slow down the spread of disease. Now, granted, particularly in countries where there is not as much access to the kind of sanitation that um, we may have in our country. And they say, well, you know, you don't have to sanitize as long as you clean a lot and stuff. Well, yeah, but so long as you clean a lot, you're qualifying your statement. In terms of Christians, it's a non-issue whether or not you're circumcised. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 18, was anyone called while circumcised? Let him not become uncircumcised. Was anyone called while uncircumcised? Let him not, not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing. And uncircumcision is nothing. Verse 19 of 1 Corinthians chapter 7. But keeping the commandment of God is all that matters. And so... It uh, doesn't mean anything for us today in terms of our level of spirituality or being God's law. But it was yet another way that God singled out his people. Now, there's other countries who practice circumcision as well. Um, but God did have this for his people. The Sabbath, by the way. The observation of the Sabbath is another way that God distinguished this particular uh, nation. But uh, again, we'll close now. The key point, again, here is verse 44 and 45. Verse 45 of chapter 11 says, I am the Lord who brings you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy even as I am holy. And according to First Peter, we're right there. We've been grafted in. We're like the Jews. We've been called to be a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Okay.